0: Okay, so what we want to look at today is the, we'll call it the spiritual and even today mystical underpinnings of the concept of tikkun olam. Today we're starting with, uh, I have to say, very theoretical ideas but if they're understood they give us incredible amount of, of strength in our, in our Jewishness. In other words, to understand what tikkun olam means, the, the translation is rectifying the world, fixing the world. And for many of you who are involved in youth groups, whether it's reform, conservative, orthodox youth groups, almost for sure you had a component called either tikkun olam or social action or any other names that you called it? Okay. What? said? Almost every, every youth group has this, it, part and parcel of being Jewish. But the question is, where does it come from? <coughs> How did we get this consciousness? In a very technical sense, the first time that this word became a known phrase or idiom, can anyone tell me where we see this phrase tikkun olam in our tradition? I'll give you a hint. It's in our prayers every day. Every day. Another hint. We say it three times a day. Aleinu. Okay? So what's the phrase? L'taken olam b'machut shadai. To rectify the world literally in the kingdom of God. Now this phrase, kingdom of God, was taken over very, very, very much by Christianity. This is a concept that pervades Christianity to create a kingdom for God on earth. But it was a Jewish concept for about 2,000 years before that. That is the first time we see this idea of fixing the world in the creating a kingdom of God on earth, which we'll call a a utopia. That's the idea here. If you read the whole Elenu, now that I'm saying this, I'm sure everyone's going to rush to their sitters immediately, right? And look, but if you look at the Elainu, this is a very, very idealistic, optimistic, and visionary prayer. We and we end our, our prayer every day saying one day God's name will be one, and he'll be one in the whole world. That's how we end the prayer every day. In other words, we 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 long for a time of what we'll call the Brotherhood and for all the ladies here, the sisterhood of mankind. we look for peace in the world, we look for what's now called the global village, but not just in a physical sense, in a spiritual sense. That's the idea of Te taken Olam, themaht Shaddai, in other words, that from all the ways back, and at the end of today, we're going to trace it all the way back to Avro. The concept that is most related to it is that of the Messiah, of Mashiach. That when Maimonides was formulating 13 principles of faith, so one of them was I believe with a complete faith that that Mashiach will come that there will be a Messianic era. Now we could have a whole discussion about the role of the Mashiach in Jewish thought and different incidences in Jewish history But that's not where I want to go with this. I want to go to a very specific place. Maimonides, and we have to remember, Maimonides was considered the epitome of a rationalist. He wasn't a Kabbalist. He wasn't a mystic. He was considered the epitome of a logical, (coughs) rational thinker. And yet, in his great work, the Mishnah Torah, the very last two chapters are about Mashiach. He ends his entire... Um, laying out of the entire law with his understanding of the coming of Mashiach. And what we need to know is that the implications of holding on to this concept. Because if you can imagine, back at the time of, of Yaakov, so before Yaakov dies, he says, he gathers his children around him and he says, I, I want to reveal to you what will happen in the end of days. In other words, he already had a vision granted by God of what would be in the end of days. In the end, he didn't reveal it to them openly. He revealed it to them through hints and allusions and parables and allegories. And one of them was to the tribe of Yehuda. And Maimonides quotes us, where, again, if you all look at your Yehumash in Parshat Vayechi and look at the brachas that Yaakov gives to Yehuda he says the Shabbat the the staff of leadership will not pass from Yehuda Ad yavo Shiloh until Shiloh comes. Shiloh this is a mysterious name but if you look at the numerical value Yavo Shiloh equals Mashiach in my eyes and as, as relevant to here the, the belief in the coming of Mashiach I think is one of the greatest contributions the Jewish people have made to the world he's not here yet so what have we added we've added something very 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 important and Christianity adopted it and Islam adopted it because both Christian and Islam historically and spiritually are an offshoot in a sense of Judaism if you really study Christianity the roots of Christianity and the roots of Islam and the comparison of their belief system with ours it's not hard to see where they come from so what we gave the world here was a core belief in the ultimate goodness of man. The optimistic look that there will come a time of human brotherhood, peace, and harmony. And this is not a small contribution. There are so many philosophies in the world, and I'm sure you know so many songs out there, that don't exactly have that message to it. It's quite the opposite. It's quite a very uh, dejected, pessimistic, um, not flattering look at where the world is going. But, but this idea of, of believing in the coming of Mashiach is that we believe that ultimately the world has a direction, it has a purpose, and it's, a, it's, it's for the good so therefore each person and each generation takes it upon themselves what can I do to contribute in some small way towards the rectification of the world now this idea is not is I would even call it a cult a Jewish cultural idea that is way beyond religiosity in other words so many people who are not religious still have this basic core belief in wanting to do something to change the world, to contribute to the world, to, to make a difference. I would say that that we get this with, our, with our, our mother's milk, in a sense. I was not raised religious whatsoever. My grandmother was a socialist in Russia, and she fought for the Socialist Revolution, even before the Communist Revolution. And that's how my mother was raised. But I was raised with this idea of we have to make the world better. We have to make this world a better place. It's fine to make money. It's fine to have a profession. All those things are fine, but you also have to do something to help the world. I'm just talking personally. My mother, like I said totally not collected, connected to religion whatsoever but when she retired my, and I have to say my mother was a very classy woman very very classy woman and it even shocked me she would go once a week she just for years she went to a soup kitchen in the heart of downtown Cleveland and served food at a soup kitchen I was like, I couldn't believe that my mother did this. It just seemed like so out of character, but it really wasn't. And one day a week, she went to the JCC and she worked with the with the blind. Even though Jews are only are less than two percent of the population, twenty percent of all charity in America, whether it's the opera or cancer society or university or hospital or we're not talking about going to Jewish causes. Just in general, all the money that's given, the heart, cancer, is from Jewish sources. This is an amazing thing. So if we want us to even farther back where the roots go, the second verse of the Torah says in English, and the the world was chaos and void, and there was darkness on the face of the (laughs) abbess, and the Spirit of God hovered on the waters. So the Midrash from 2,000 years ago says, Tohu, this is Babylonia. The exile Babylonia. Vohu, chaos and void, this is Persia. Darkness, this is Greece. On the face of the deep is Rome. And the Spirit of God moving on the waters is the spirit of Mashiach. Now, what is the, Mid- the, what the Midrash telling us? The Midrash is telling us that at the very creation of the world, God already foresaw the ultimate coming of Mashiach. So this tells us something very important. It tells us that there is a direction and purpose to history. I When I... Grew up in the 60s, existentialist philosophy was was king, was ruling. This is just the opposite. There is no innate purpose to anything really, other than what you might put into something. But there are in all, different theories of evolution. It's a different subject, but... but as I understand the Torah is not against evolution per se. But there's certain parts of evolution that it's just kind of like all by chance. Maybe it's a big mistake that we ended up this way. That's not a Jewish belief. A Jewish belief is we can believe in evolution, but we also believe that there is a divine purpose and direction to the world. So here we see in the second verse of the Torah already, the Spirit of God moving on the waters was after all these exiles, Babylonia and Persia and Greece and Rome, then Mashiach will come. This, I'm just trying to like lay the uh, foundation of where this concept of tikkun Olam comes. So now I'm going to get very Kabbalistic for five minutes, but you'll see why. You'll see why it, it, it fits in here perfectly. Everyone's heard of the Arizal? Okay, the Arizal was a great Kabbalist in Sfat around 500 years ago. The, the contributions of this generation, including Kabbalat Shabbat. Kabbalat Shabbat came from this period in Sfat. It didn't exist before that. And the, and the greatest of the Kabbalists was the Arizal. He had a, a, an incredible influence on Jewish thought much more than than most people realize. So he said like this, in his cosmology of, of how the world was created, which, this is a whole subject of itself, which is incredibly parallel to quantum physics today. There's been a number of books and many articles written on the parallel between quantum physics and string theory, cosmology, Big Bang, relativity, and the teachings of Kabbalah in the Zohar and especially the Arizo so he said like this and you'll see why I'm bringing this up that when God wanted to create the world all there was was the infinite presence of, of, of God so strangely enough the question pops up where would God put a, a finite world if everything is infinite and and there is nothing other than God, where do you put a, a finite world? It might sound like a silly question, but it's not a silly question. It's trying to really understand how does infinity and finiteness, which quantum physics deals with also, how do they work together? So the Arizal presented this concept, which is actually based in the Zohar, That as it were, God contracted his infinite being and made an empty place, as it were, to put a finite world. We're taught that it's as it were because there can be no place that's empty of God's presence. But there's an illusion to it. And then, so you had a vacuum, as it were, and then God... Shown a ray of light into this vacuum from which all the worlds evolved. But then the Arizal said that these first lights were so strong because they were coming from the infinite light of God that the first, what we'll call vessels of physicality, if you would, could not contain the light and they broke. This is what in Kabbalah, if you've ever come across, it's called the shattering of the vessels. Shvirata keling. And he said, again, this is all a huge allegory based on a a reality. But the words that are chosen are an allegory. So what happened? All of the vessels shattered and each vessel had contained in it Light. And, and he explained that this world, our world, is the result of the breaking of the vessels. But this is what I'm leading to. So what did he call this world? Olamatikun. He called this world the world of fixing, the world of rectification. And he explained that that's what this world is about. This world is about fixing reality. That's why we're told in the Gemara that when we say Kiddush on Friday night, the Talmud says it's as if you become a partner with God in the creation of the world. Shabbos is an integral part of the world, but it's more than that. That God made the world in a way that only we can complete it. And that's where Tikkun Olam comes from, this concept of fixing the world. So this idea that everywhere we look is broken, and it's our job, our mission. And he said this very clearly. He said it's the mission of the Jewish people to bring healing, light, and fixing to the world. And so therefore, this was in the 1500s, these ideas caught on like wildfire in the Jewish world and they filtered down. So if anyone has studied the social movements of the last 200 years, whether it's the labor unions, civil rights (coughs) movement, socialism, communism, women's rights, whatever it is, you will see... Um, either those who initiated it or those way up at the top were Jewish. It's uncanny. Even more than that, if you look at different um, religious groups in America that came from different places, how many Jews there are involved in all of these. Because there's an innate part of the Jewish soul that wants to fix the world and if you look at we're just talking about in theory if you look at communism if you look at it on paper it was a totally utopian concept that everyone would put in according to their means and would take according to their needs and there would be no uh, rulers and there would be one class and everyone would share everything well, we know how it turned out i'm just talking about the idea the idea was extremely uti- it was messianic the idea of communism was messianic and it, it caught on it caught the whole world's um, imagination again the way it turned out was a little bit different karl marx and trotsky and bella luxembourg if you look at all of these movements so, I'm, I'm saying all this so, we, so we, under, we can put it in a context so we understand. We, can say we get it with our mother's milk. It is, it's such a part and parcel. And why there are so many Jewish doctors, you know, you can say, oh, because they make a good living. But in Israel, they don't make a good living. <laughs> they, don't, they really don't make a, a great living. If you look at many of our sages, Maimonides is the greatest example. Wasn't because he got rich being a doctor, but there was this innate. I can help people. I can heal. Right before we get the torah at Sinai, God says to the Jewish people, "You are a nation of priests and a holy nation." So when they the commentaries ask, "What does it mean a nation of priests?" We we have a, we have khanim but we're not all khanim we're not a nation of priests what does it mean a nation of priests so it's explained it means a nation of leaders that not only is there the let's say the vision of how we should fix the world but there's also something very deeply ingrained about the ability and the necessity to go out and do it not just as a vision or a dream but to actually actualize it this is best summed up in in the words of Isaiah where he said that we're we're to be a light unto the nations and that also captured the Jewish imagination to be a light unto the nations and so this brings us to where we are in, in history right now Another great example example is Elie Wiesel. Here's a, here's a person who suffered in the camps for being Jewish, but he then took that as a motivational force to speak to all of humanity about these issues. He's he's really an excellent example of, and he's not. I mean, he's a very traditional. Person, but he's not a religious Jew per se. But he's been on a crusade for, for 50 years in order to try to make sure that genocide never happens to anyone again. And he speaks out on all these different causes when it comes to uh, human, human rights. This is an example for many others and there's no doubt that it, the civil rights movement in America the, the, uh, some of the first religious leaders was, uh, was uh, Abram Heschel who you know many many famous pictures and it was 62, 63 of marching in, in Alabama and if you ever, ever see the movie Mississippi Burning you ever see that? So this, this is from my period in the 60s. There was a, a voter registration drive in the South. Uh, Af- African Americans were terrified to, they, to sign up to vote because there, there was tremendous pressure against that. So there were voter registration drives. It's amazing this is only 40 years ago. And many, many young college kids... Went down south, and it was it was it was very it was very dangerous, and three of them were were killed. In other words, a signal was sent: don't come down here, don't mess with us. And two of the three were Jewish. So, and I myself, uh, at age sixteen, was uh, marching against the Ku Klux Klan. In, in, in Ohio, down by Columbus, um, there was their registration drive to get people into Ku Klux Klan. And we went out, and it, it, was, it was all African Americans and Jews. There were like 30 or 40 of us. And I, I kid you not, they were burning crosses. And the police and the FBI were there kind of like trying to be between us and them. And at a certain point, they were taking our pictures. Our pictures ended up in FBI files, not theirs. And at a certain point, they came and they said, we have information that they have guns and we can't be responsible for your lives. If you want to stay, it's in Hebrew, on your own chesban. it's like, that's up to you. But we can't be responsible to protect you. So this is like my Nikva in fire about uh, trying to fix the world at uh, age 16. Why did I do it? What did you do? What did, oh, did you guys- no, so we, we talked among each other and we knew that it was for real. So we, we, our compromise, we stayed like another 20 to 30 minutes so that it doesn't, didn't appear that we were like running immediately. And then we decided to leave. And as we had we tried to make our mark, since my sister was a, a part of this, I'll just, I'm, I'm on a tangent here, but on a Sunday morning, and she was going around, Organizing demonstrations against the Klan every place where they went. And a Sunday morning, I got a woken phone rang, I, I picked it up, and someone is swearing and cursing at me over the phone. I had no idea what was going on. M- must be a mistake, I just hung up. Try to go back to sleep, but it, was, it was a little bit upsetting. Ten minutes later, the phone rings again. Someone is cursing and threatening. I I, I woke up my mother, like, what? I don't know what's going on here. I go out and get the paper. Someone uh, had interviewed my sister and put her address in the front page of of the Cleveland paper. So people looked up the address for the phone number and we had to call the police and, you know, they they were going to tap the phone. By the end of the morning, they stopped, the call stopped. But it was like, whoa, whoa. But my sister didn't stop. She didn't stop. That was a little bit of a tangent, but again, it, it it was just, I was raised like that. You have to make a difference in the world. I just want to kind of bring this to a close and just mention something about Avram. Why I'm mentioning all of this is that truthfully to be an advocate for Israel let's just say that, to be an advocate for Israel, but that's a lot what's happening on campus. We have to have an appreciation of our our spiritual lineage. We have to know ourselves why defending Israel is so important. And why being Jewish is so important. We need like a holistic view of our our commitment to Israel and Jewishness. This is not... an I'm not advocating... I'm not getting into the religious question. But I'm just saying, wherever one is holding, as far as Judaism, we need to be literate. We need to be informed. We need to know where we're coming from and where we're going. And who we come from and what we stand for and what we have contributed to the world. We need to know these things. They're, they're important. They're important to give, uh, first place, us strength. There's nothing like worse than let's say you're, you're approached by a Christian missionary on campus and he's quoting the Bible by memory and you have a young Jewish person on campus. They don't know the Bible at all. And they're like speechless. They're getting very sophisticated arguments and like they don't know what to answer. So this is, is all part of it. In other words, in our day, we're talking about being committed to our Judaism and committed to, to Israel. but We have to be knowledgeable. So what I've tried to do today is to see where this idea of tikkun olam is coming from. Where is leadership coming from? Where is chesed? And see, where does it come from to visit the sick? Where does it come from to to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked? Where does it come from? We need we need to know these things, and it will strengthen us. You can go back to campus and help inspire others and motivate others, whether it's to do something for Rosh Hashanah or for Shabbat or for Yom HaZikaron or Yom HaShoah whatever it is but to, to make a difference